The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Joining us today is the author of The Devil's Playbook, a new book about the rise and fall of Juul, the sleek electronic cigarettes your kids probably hit. She's also a reporter at Bloomberg News. Lauren Etter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Great having you here. Uh, I don't know why, maybe because I've covered Facebook for a long time, but I have a real interest in vice and addiction. And so I saw that your book was coming out. It's just out and couldn't wait to dive into it. And it's a fantastic book. So thank thank you you. for writing it. Um, But what's interesting about your book is, you know, you, you write about two Stanford kids taking on a big, bad industry, one that harms people who see the need to disrupt it uh, and, you know, take it down with a less harmful solution. And, you know, typically that's a tale of Silicon Valley heroism and we celebrate that out here. But this one's a little different. So why is that? So, well, the first thing to say, just a short answer to your question is because it's tobacco. They, mm-hmm. you know, they could have chosen any industry to innovate on, and they chose perhaps the most controversial one. Mm-hmm. Tobacco has a very long and sordid history in, um, in America, and it's one that's extremely controversial we made it through the tobacco wars in the 1990s. The tobacco industry was near bankruptcy, and they touched a nerve like no other when you know there was this long history of deceit and lying to the American public about the addictive and deadly nature of the product. They uh, embarked on one of the most um, most consequential and large disinformation campaigns about their product. The cigarette makers. The cigarette makers, absolutely. And so so these two guys make sort of the alternative to that, which is a very appealing e-cigarette, kind of looks like USB drive. And well, I, I, you know, why don't you keep going? But it's, uh, it is interesting how they they see that there's this cancer-causing product. You're right, even that most of the damage is done by the actual uh, lighting of the cigarette. It's not the tobacco; it's the actual flame and the combustion. And so this is supposed to be a safer alternative, but it, yeah. it goes off the rails a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the most fascinating things. This is one of the most deadly products that remains on the market today that's considered to be legal. And the cigarette. Uh, the cigarette. Sorry. Yeah. We should mm-hmm. absolutely, we're talking about the cigarette right now. Mm-hmm. The cigarette is one of the most deadly products. Um, it contributes, you know, causes or is the uh, most leading cause of preventable death in America contributes to the death of 400 and almost 500,000 people every year. So why not so innovate a COVID, on this product? a COVID each year. Yeah. Yes, a COVID right. each year. It's a really yeah. interesting statistic. Um, so absolutely, it seemed like it was absolutely ripe for innovation. This is what Silicon Valley does. They look for products that haven't been innovated on, you know, gaps in markets, that type of thing. And this is absolutely a product that had not been innovated on mm-hmm. in more than a century. It was essentially yeah. pa- paper, shredded tobacco leaf, you light it on fire, just like Christopher Columbus witnessed, you know, <laughs> back in the day, and you inhale it into your lungs. So there had been no innovation. So of course, um, 
Adam and James, Adam Bowen and James Monsies, the founder of founders, co-founders of Jewel, um, realized that there was a big gap in the market and decided to try innovating on that. Right. And then Silicon Valley folks also go out looking for problems and try to find ways that they can solve it using technology. So yes, they had the cigarette obviously hadn't been changed in a long time. I mean, of course, the tobacco companies had played with it. You know, maybe it's a lighter, you know, drag or a more nicotine heavy drag or um, different flavors like a menthol or something like that. But they were in the Stanford design lab and basically said, what are you? No one's touched this yet and thought that they could design something better. And it's interesting, like through the book, you know, the jewel. And I mean, it, it, I feel like if you've been breathing in the last three or four years, you've seen, you know, the jewel out in public, but it is cool. It's sleekly designed. It looks like this USB. It uh, it hits uh, pretty well. And it has what it started out with 5% nicotine, which is more. Well, yeah, actually, this is a good moment to pause. So we talk about cigarettes, there's tobacco, there's nicotine. Um, that the throughout the book, there's this theme that actually it's nicotine. That's the substance that's really so addicting. So yeah. is I, I want to hear a little bit more, just like, let's talk about baseline. Cause so often we talk about these things. We don't do, go into depth about them. There's just mm-hmm. typically a top line. Cigarettes are bad. Tobacco is bad. You know, combining everything, the paper, the tar, the leaf, the nicotine together. Um, but you know, I, I'd like to hear your perspective first about you know, what is it about nicotine, uh, you know, that's so addictive and what's actually the harmful part of these products? So that's one of the most interesting aspects of this product and of this debate is that actually it's not the nicotine that kills Americans. It kills 480,000 Americans every single year. It's a combustion of the tobacco leaf. So nicotine taken by itself is not necessarily harmful. There are studies shown uh, that studies that show that it can co- contribute to heart disease. It can, um, you know, um, there's nothing that shows that it can actually contribute to lung disease. That type of thing. The actual thing that causes lung disease is a cigarette. So nicotine by itself, the proponents of the products will say it's just like caffeine, or it's just like um, you know co- uh, any other kind of. Um, enjoyable product that might give you like a little bit of a high or something like that. Um, But the biggest problem with nicotine is that it's highly addictive. It's as addictive as heroin. And, um, you know, when you're a teenager, when your brain is not fully developed, so the the youth brain does not become fully developed until the age of 25. So, your it, it studies show that it can interfere with the development of your brain and cause um, harms down the road in terms of hmm. judgment and that type of thing. So we're really talking about youth addiction and whether or not, I mean, really what you're getting at is a super important question about why do we care if there are millions of Americans addicted to nicotine? Like, who cares? We that have millions of Right. Yeah. Especially if it's not going to harm them to the point that a cigarette is. And that I think is the case that, that Jewel and its proponents make. And in fact, what Philip Morris and I guess later named Altria was trying to make, which is that Mm -hmm. they're going to do this reduced harm cigarette, get off our backs. Right. And the most fascinating part of that with the tobacco industry is that for years they said, no, it's not the nicotine that keeps people smoking. It's the enjoyable factor of a cigarette. And they denied for so many years that Mm -hmm. that nicotine was even addictive. Of course, we have this epic kind of historical moment in front of Congress in 1994, 1996, um, where they, uh, the, all of the CEOs of the tobacco industry, the seven CEOs sat before Congress and held up their right hands and said that 
they believe that nicotine was not addictive. They were splitting hairs there, um, but they did say that. And um, so for so many years, they denied that. And suddenly Mm -hmm. the industry is saying, okay, well, no, we all agree that nicotine is addictive. And let's just kind of focus on the nicotine now. So it's a huge kind of 180 in terms of the public policy and thinking about this this type of product. But and it yeah, paves the way for e-cigarettes. Paves the way for e-cigarettes. Yeah. Because suddenly you have people talking about, okay, well, cigarettes are deadly. It's a combustion that kills people. It's not the nicotine. And why don't we just take away the combustion? And if Americans want nicotine so badly, let's just give them what they want and right. allow them to have it. So what's the big deal? Yeah. And so, and nicotine, you know, I think that a lot of the ways that the cigarette companies describe it is that it's satisfying, right? Yes. It's the chemical that satisfies brings a calm over somebody, but then as it, you know, and you inhale it through your lungs, cause that's the fastest way to deliver it mm-hmm. into your system. But as it dissipates, it leaves you wanting more pretty badly. Exactly. It is. It's, it's, it's highly addictive. It can, it, it, it begins a cycle where your, your brain releases these, um, um, neurotransmitters and, um, you know, dopamine and actually the cigarette and nicotine actually contribute to lots of things. It's like, it can relax you. Mm-hmm. It can give you, um, make you alert. It focus. can, yes, focus. Make it you feel can, cool. It can make you feel cool. It can give you that little buzz. It can, um, it can calm you. It can, I mean, it has lots of different beneficial properties. There've even been studies showing that it can help with people who have Parkinson's disease so there's a real reframing of what the problem is and how do we solve it. I mean, there's actually m- multiple threads to this that need to be d- dissected mm-hmm. and talked about. But um, right now, just kind of fast forward a little bit, we can go back. But right now, the tobacco industry, including Altria, is very focused on uh, correcting the misinformation about nicotine. They feel like there needs to be a re-education campaign, and they've actually asked the FDA to spend some of their fundraising dollars that they've spent on youth tobacco use in general and prevention to re-educating Americans about nicotine. Because a lot, the, the truth is, a lot of people are confused about nicotine. They, a, a, a substantial and kind of shocking amount of people, believe that it's nicotine that kills you when, in fact, it's not. It's a cigarette. So it's a combustion. So, yeah, um, I think we're going to hear a lot more about nicotine and. Certainly, it's not going away anytime soon. Yeah. And listeners, I swear we're going to get to the technology aspect of this in a moment, but it's important to set the backstory. So uh, having said what we've just talked about, tobacco, the combustion is the bad part. Nicotine is, is the addictive element to it, but coffee is addictive and we have that legal. Um, so just briefly, what's the problem here then with having folks addicted to nicotine? If it is having these positive uh, effects on people, the focus, you know, the self-confidence and the satisfaction. What's the issue? Right. I mean, I think you should think about it this way. It's like, what is the purpose of it? Um, and also the fact, what is the purpose of having nicotine and who's making money off of it? It always goes back to who's making money. Mm-hmm. And you have this gigantic industry that is predicated on people being addicted to their product and continuing to use it forever. So. Um, the the problem really gets at the youth issue. Um, one of the most startling and I think sticking statistics is mm-hmm. that ninety percent of adult smokers today began smoking before they were eighteen. Ninety nine percent of them began smoking before the age of twenty five. Of course, is when the youth the the your brain is fully matured. 
So you have people who are becoming addicted to a product when their brains aren't fully developed and they become addicted to it for life. Let's say not all of them for life, but lots of them for life. And it's, you know, essentially inhaling something into your lungs. And if they didn't start when they were kids, they wouldn't start when they were adults. So essentially the industry is basing its entire business model on the next generation of users. So I don't know. I, this is really a social kind of moral question about yeah. whether or not we care, whether or not we care if, you know, if there's a product that's not as deadly as a cigarette, if we care that they're using it. And I think the answer, at least in my mind right now, is that, first of all, e-cigarettes are not proven to be safe. There is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of research going on right now, but there have not been long-term clinical studies showing that e-cigarettes are safe because at the end of the day, and, you know, the anti kind of anti-e-cigarette, anti-vape people will, you know, point this out, like the lungs were designed to breathe air and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so you're essentially, while you're not inhaling a fire burning product, smoke, you are inhaling a vapor or actually an aerosol which contains propylene glycol, vegetable glycerin, lots of flavoring compounds that have subcompounds and you know lots of different things that when you heat them up they can create cancer potentially cancer causing chemicals like aldehydes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there just haven't been a long long enough studies. So when you look back at the cigarette industry and you see how for so many years they obfuscated and lied about the nature of their product, you and you know it took a generation to show that there were lung cancer that there was cancer developed from cigarette so it begs the question of whether or not in a generation we're going to see vapors have some sort of lung disease i'm not yeah. trying to be an alarmist mm-hmm. i'm not trying to be in that camp that says like oh my god this is like the you know the worst thing in the whole world but like there are a lot of unknowns and it begs the question of whether or not the you know the fda endorses a product that hasn't been fully studied and is like on the market for people to be using. So especially for kids. So I think there are lots of important questions, but yeah, nicotine, you know, it's, I think there's still kind of an open question about why do we care? I think we care. I I think most people would say, eh, we don't really want our kids being addicted to anything, you know, especially highly addictive product like nicotine. Yeah. And what struck me in the book is that Scott Gottlieb, who was running the FDA uh, under Trump for uh, some time, who you describe as libertarian, uh, even he was like, we are not going to have an epidemic of youth smoking under my watch or youth nicotine addiction under my watch. And it turns out that's what happened. So yeah, exactly. Scott like Gottlieb, when, when, yeah. when a libertarian yeah. is saying <laughs> the government should step in and do something, that's when you sort of know, okay, you know, maybe, maybe this is something that, you know, we should be focused on here and yeah. there could be some harm. Yeah. I mean, he was in a really difficult position. I mean, this is, there's kind of many dimensions to this, but he, and we can talk about that, but he ultimately saw what was happening. And, you know, so after the tobacco wars in the 1990s, there had been this huge push, this huge youth prevention campaign to reduce the number of youth smokers. And it it worked. It had been going down, 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 down. And it had been at the lowest levels. And then e-cigarettes come in, come in and suddenly it starts ticking back up. And when Juul arrives on the market in the summer of 2015, it just like really picked up. So suddenly it was like, wait, we solved this epidemic. Oh, 
no, we didn't. Now there's this new product that's contributing to this new nicotine epidemic. And Scott Gottlieb did not want to be the person that oversaw the rise of this. Of course he did. He was Mm -hmm. that person. Um, But it was complicated for Scott Gottlieb. Like, there were forces outside of his control, but I don't want to get too yeah. deep into the politics of that nature. But I do think yeah. that it was interesting that he came out, you know, pretty stringently against and had this fiery kind of speech as one of his last actions as uh, the head of the FDA. But I do yeah. want to get into we talked a little bit and I think the most compelling case against these things is the way that they do hook kids, teens and preteens. So do you have any stats about how many kids were using Juul at its height? Because it has... I think it's declined a little bit, but um, just give yes. us a picture of how pervasive this was among young people, even right. a couple of years ago. Yeah, so it it basically reached more than five million kids, more than five million teens, um, high school and middle school students were using um, e-cigarettes. Now that's not broken down by Juul, but most of them, or a high percentage of them, were Juul because Juul took off. So we have five million. Uh, students who were using e-cigarettes slash Juul. Um, over the past year, it did decline by about 1.3 million. So you still mm-hmm. have like three point some million um, that are still on it. That are still using it. You know, it's something about the past 30 days they've used this product. So mm. it's still millions of kids that are using it. Yeah, and like super young kids also. Yes. Yes. And that was kind of the shocking thing. It wasn't like 18 year olds, 17 year olds. It was like middle schoolers. You know, Mm -hmm. it was, it was, it was cascading through middle schools. So I think that was kind of the most alarming thing. It was just like, wait, is this, is this really the solution to a bigger problem, which is about adult smokers essentially. And that's a big trade-off and the crux of the issue. Right. That's what it was marketed as originally. Um, that was the big, you know, uh, well, the marketing, we'll get into the marketing in a second, <laughs> second. Yeah. but that was the initial, oh, dr- the dreamy Silicon Valley language is we're going to heal yes. the world by being this thing that will take people off these cancer causing cigarettes and put them onto Juul. So Correct. there was a moment where it did seem like Juul was going to take over the world, you know, when those 5 million kids were using it and untold numbers of adults were as well. And now that doesn't seem to be the case. So what happened? Briefly. Well, briefly, what happened is the FDA kind of stepped in. They took, they ended up taking off some of the flavored products. So Juul used to be sold in, you know, um, creme brulee and mint and fruit and that type of thing. The FDA said, we're not going to allow these pod based products to come in flavored products anymore. So right now you can only buy Juul in tobacco flavor and menthol flavor. So that was a huge, like really took away a big percentage (laughs) of their market. It it, like, Really answers the question of whether those fun flavors actually were intended for kids. And I mean, once they took it off, the kids are off the market. That's very telling. Yeah. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. There were new products that were coming on the market, like Puff Bar, the single use products Mm -hmm. that came in like pink lemonade and other, other flavors. And they actually were not subjected. I guess it proves your point, but they weren't subjected to the flavor regulation. Mm -hmm. So you can still go out and buy pink lemonade flavored Puff Bar, for example. But so there was new competition in the market, but, um, but also, I think there was that scare. People suddenly got scared by Evali, which was the uh, the lung the lung injury, um, chronic lung injury that um, initially yeah. was tied to vaping. Right. To your point, we don't know how uh, how this will actually impact our health in the long term. But we saw some really scary stuff in the short term, where like previously healthy people were obliterating their lungs with vape machines. Right. Vapes. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Vapes. And exactly. And 
And this is like a flashpoint in the debate about e-cigarettes right now. The pro-vaping crowd, they're very upset at the CDC for Mm. basically causing this panic over e-cigarettes. What happened was the product that was most directly contributing to the lung injuries was actually a bootlegged um, CBD product, like uh, cannabis product. Yeah, it was stuff people were getting... Well, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Oh, but no, yeah. They, yeah. Right, the they, the right. They, Even it if it weed. doesn't have the active ingredient, which is THC, but yeah. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean CBD. It was actually yeah. THC. Oh, it was. It did have the active right. ingredient. They were getting yeah. high. They uh, were vaping the uh, the pods that contain THC with, um, but the, the product on the market, they were cutting it with something called um, um, vitamin E um, oil, essentially. And um, that was what they found to be the contributing one of the leading contributing factors of that disease. So the anti or the pro vaping crowd, they're very upset at the CDC for not coming out sooner and saying it wasn't nicotine containing products. It wasn't jewel that was causing people to get this lung injury. It was actually these, you know, bootleg black market products that were not, you know, most people weren't using. Um, The CDC has remained pretty cautious about Mm -hmm. this. They, they, they continue to say that there are a number of, uh, you know, people who've come down with the lung injury who used nicotine only containing products. So nicotine containing products only. So it's, it's still, I mean, while it's pretty certain that the lung injuries that we saw, the spate of lung injuries that we saw were contributed by this or caused by this um, um, vitamin E acetate and the THC, the CDC has not ruled out that nicotine-containing products contribute to this problem as well. Um, So, you know, they're not, the industry is not in the clear necessarily, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we go to the break, I'm just curious, um, you know, we want to get to the tech stuff, of course, but I'm curious uh, what inspired you to start writing about this stuff. Uh, Are you a smoker? Do you have smokers in your family or was it just an interesting business story for you? So I'm not a smoker. I uh, definitely smoked um, back in the Mm -hmm. day when I was a teen um, and um, my grandfather died of lung cancer from smoking, a lifetime Mm -hmm. of smoking. Um, and, um, but for me, it was more, uh, a business story more than anything. Um, it was a fascinating yeah. business story about, you know, Silicon Valley company taking on this very notorious industry that struck me as one of the most interesting business stories I've ever written about. So mm-hmm. that was largely what drew me to it, but certainly I had some kind of like personal interest in the story as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. One of the things that, um, I thought about as I was reading was, you know, in high school, of course, I mean, maybe not of course, but it seemed natural to me to try cigarettes. And I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would probably still be smoking cigarettes today. And if I was juuling, I'm sure I would be like a jewel addict at this point. Um, but I got lucky and just had a bad experience. I think I uh, got a, my hands on a pack of like really low quality cigarettes and then um, led them off uh, someone's, a friend's stove and then just chain smoked like four or five in a row threw up for like four hours and that was the end of cigarettes for me but without that and if i had like this like pretty easy device that you know delivers a nice hit of nicotine and you could smoke the equivalent of a pack of cigarettes in an afternoon without you know feeling what i felt you know i'm sure i would be addicted to that stuff well and that's a thing and like they came in these cool flavors like Mm -hmm. who wouldn't what teen wouldn't want to inhale gummy bears you know i mean it's a (laughs) yeah it's a very attractive kind of product. And then it was like really cool and flashy and we'll get into the tech and stuff like that. But right. I Mm -hmm. think it's important to note to re to underscore what you said is that a single pod of jewel contains as much nicotine as a pack of cigarettes. 
Mm-hmm. And there's no on or off switch. There's no like, you know, you light the cigarette, the ash, you put it out, it's done. Like you can just keep inhaling all of this nicotine. You just reload the pod and um, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to step outside. Nobody's like, oh, you stink. Like it's, it's really ideal. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the tech stuff right after the break. Um, you know, because everyone says, you know, Jules a tech company, but are they really? All right, we'll be back with Lauren Edder right after this. Will AI improve our lives or exterminate the species? What would it take to abolish poverty? Are you eating enough fermented foods? These are some of the questions we've tackled recently on The Next Big Idea. I'm Rufus Griscom, and every week I sit down with the world's leading thinkers for in-depth conversations that will help you live, work, and play smarter. Follow The Next Big Idea wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back here on the Big Technology Podcast with Lauren Edder, the author of The Devil's Playbook. It's a great book about Jewel. We've been talking about the rise and fall of Jewel. Let's talk about the technology aspect, really dig into that. Um, so, Lauren, I mean, is Jewel a tech company? Because they do seem like electronics company and they, they sell vapes. You know, they're not exactly like software savants. They're not building iPhones, which has hardware and software inside. So we talk about them as, you know, a tech company in Silicon Valley. They obviously set up shop in San Francisco. I always found it weird that like their headquarters are just a few blocks away from our headquarters when I was working at BuzzFeed. Uh, And, you know, they're still not not too far away from me here in San Francisco. So I'm curious what you think about about the distinction. Do they really deserve to be a tech company? Because everybody wants to call themselves a tech company these days. I mean, it's interesting. Like, is Tesla a tech company? You know, like, I feel like mm-hmm. they are a tech company. Um, they innovate. Tesla, I would say, yeah, most definitely, yeah. But right. let's hear about Jewel. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess the reason that I bring up that uh, mm-hmm. comparison is because I think it's interesting that, you know, it took Silicon Valley to innovate on Detroit, right? Like, the innovation did not come from, you know, GM or Ford initially. Well, you know, go back. But anyway, the real innovation didn't come from there. It came from Silicon Valley. And I think it's the same with Jewel. Like, I do think they're a tech company. I mean, as much as uh, Jewel would like to distance themselves now from their tech company roots and from the kind of Silicon Valley roots, I I think they are. I mean, they solved a problem, attempted to solve a problem, innovated on an old school market, brought to bear technology. Um, you know, they, they're certainly a hardware company. Um, and, um, yeah, I do think I, I would definitely call them a tech company for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I think distinguishes them is that they did take VC money. Yes. And when you take venture capital money, that changes everything because rather be, rather than being like an old school business that sort of built, you all of a sudden have some serious growth expectations. Yes. And you have to justify because VCs look for 10, 20x returns and anything else is sort of considered a failure. And I'm curious from your perspective, how did taking that VC money change what Jewel ended up, uh, what Jewel could have been and then what it ended up becoming? You know, when I think about Jewel and what the company could have been and how they could have solved this real problem of smokers and the smoking epidemic. I really do believe that taking the tech money and 
you know, kind of fashioning themselves as a tech company was in a way their demise because Mm -hmm. it did put so much pressure on them to meet those metrics. Like one person kind of close to the company said it was like we suddenly had a gun at our backs and we had to run. Mm -hmm. Like you have to, once you take the money, you have to basically figure out how to scale and to continue to justify the investment. And so that's exactly what they did. They took the money, they figured out how to scale, and they hired the wrong people. They Mm -hmm. hired people from Silicon Valley who, and this was kind of in their DNA, but they hired people who decided to scale the product as fast as possible to create a return on their investment and to scale the company, and who were concerned first and foremost with marketing the product and getting it out there as fast as possible. And I think I really do think that that was a pain point for them. That was a point where they, you know, they could have done the business differently. There were multiple options. It just would not have been a monster growth company, right? So yes, I think that, you know, by fashioning themselves as, as a tech company, taking the VC money, kind of plugging into that entire ecosystem, put them in a situation where they had to scale very quickly and scaling for them meant getting a nic- highly addictive nicotine product into as many hands as possible. Um, and I think that ended up being problematic for them and they're paying for it uh, dramatically right now. Right. And, and just to uh, hang on to one word that you said, the highly addictive part of it. Um, so these these devices were delivering 5% nicotine. Um, yes. what is that, how does that compare to like a regular cigarette? Um, it's not an exact comparison because people mm-hmm. smoke differently. Some people smoke slower. Some people don't plug holes on the filter. There's people mm-hmm. smoking habits, but the best comparison is that it is, um, uh, one pod. I think the easiest comparison is what I've already said, which is the, the a one pod, pod equals a pocket pack of cigarettes. Yeah. yeah. But the point but, is but that the, the other, yeah. sorry, the other comparison that's I think, um, mm-hmm. really useful is that at the time when Juul came in the market, no other e-cigarette was 5%. Like right. the earlier competitors were like 2% at best, mm-hmm. maybe 3%. It was the most highly addictive nicotine e-cigarette on the market by far. Right. And you couldn't even, if you wanted to get a less, uh, less concentrated nicotine uh, pod from them, you couldn't get it. Correct. So uh, th- that, yeah. So I think they did that. And then of course, the marketing to kids, right? Because they knew that that was going to give them the big market and, and um, that had a chance to, to blow up due to virality. So it seems like those, those decisions are, what, are, are basically um, a factor of, of this money. Right. So this is one of the most contentious issues right now. And this is, you know, the attorneys general are going to be litigating this. It's like mm-hmm. a very hotly debated issue right now that has like very high stakes kind of legal ramifications, whether or not Jewel actually intended to market to kids. Mm-hmm. So essentially, when they created their first marketing campaign, they designed a campaign that seemed pretty cool. You know, and seemed like a very sexy, kind of flashy, using bright colors, using super hot models. And yeah. you know, not only that, they were talking about how in, internally, I think you have this detail in the book, they were talking about how the models looked young and they were happy about that. Yeah, that was that's going to be probably introduced in litigation. The fact that they were talking about the the youngness I mean, of that's the models. Crazy to me. It's like, how I, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Well, but, I don't know but you, you know, that. 
yeah. for Jewel uh, to, you know, to kind of mm-hmm. play devil's advocate or to come to Jewel's defense mm-hmm. a little bit, like they did talk about how we should get models who look, you know, you know, older or we should get models. They talked about it. And I think that's going to actually be potentially problematic for them because they are aware of it. But they mm-hmm. did say, let's try to get models who are at least like 25 or older so they don't yeah. seem like they're young. But like, how but do I've you worked, market? But I've worked in marketing. Like, you <laughs> you don't get something out the door unless you go through like 50 rounds of approvals. It's not oh, like no, some rogue had, marketer yes. is going to no. go out and say, bam, and then you're going to, you know, you refine the message. And when, by the time something gets out the door, everyone signed off on it. A hundred percent. And Jewel was unique because the board, the board of directors was extremely hands-on. This Mm. was not a board that met occasionally to kind of like check numbers and make sure like things were going off the rails. They were living in the offices. Yes. And they were extremely involved and they absolutely saw the marketing campaign and signed off on it. And um, so, yeah, but you know, they, they were, their mindset was, okay, let's create a product that's cool and that people are going to like and that people are going to use. And how do you market a product to a 25-year-old that's not cool to an 18-year-old? You know, it's a very kind of difficult marketing kind of um, line to walk. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, getting back to tech, they relied heavily on social media. You know, mm-hmm. Jewel was everywhere. It was on Instagram. It was on Twitter. It was on Facebook. It was, you know, they had these splashy parties that they threw in the Hamptons. And, you know, they showed up at um, um, music festivals. And so, of course, they marketed their product to be cool. And they immediately got backlash and tried to kind of correct. But the genie was out of the bottle. Yeah. Just like, you know, with um, social media, once something goes viral, you can't take it back. You can't be like, oh, I wish I didn't send that tweet or, oh, I wish mm-hmm. I, you know, hadn't done that. I mean, a lot of people find that out the hard way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The genie was out of the bottle and their product was out there. And again, getting back to the danger of having a viral product that is also addictive is that there's a snowball effect. People want more of it and they can continue to come back for it. And Mm. that's partly the genius of the business model too, right? Is like, it's not like a razor blade. They kind of built their model like similar to like Gillette or something like that. But razor blades aren't addictive. Right, because you want to buy buy the refills, but you you don't get addicted to shaving. You might like it, but you're not going to have a chemical need for a smooth face. Correct. Correct. So I really think that it was their entire business model. Their entire business model was flawed. Mm. They could have, they could have like gone the slow route where they, you know, sought approval from the FDA to sell it as a therapeutic device that treated uh, nicotine addiction or they could smoke the cigarette addiction rather. Um, They could have, you know, you know, marketed it to adults, truly marketed it to older smokers. And they just didn't. I think it gets back to your question about, is this a tech company? They had the pressure of Silicon Valley. And then the once you see money in particular, which yes. demanded those returns. And I, I view money. this thing as such a tragedy. Honestly, I view, I view the Jewel story as a, as a tragedy, because as I read your book, you know, I, I learned so much about the industry and I learned about how you know, like we spoke about at the top, the damage is through the burning of the cigarettes. And this is actually a real harm reduction uh, tactic that that can be used and can can help people. And Jewel had that opportunity. 
you know, through the design and through all the brilliant scientists they brought in to help engineer the product just right. Uh, and they could have been, you know, I mean, who knows what will happen to them in the future, but they could have been this great respected business that had a massive market, just marketing to the people smoking cigarettes already who are looking for an alternative. Uh, and, yeah. and in fact, people in the book, you were talking about how employees started reaching for the jewel instead of their cigarettes in the early stage. So it did yeah. have that replacement mm-hmm. capability, but it was this drive to j- just get so big, you know, growth at all costs. We hear that all the time out here in Silicon Valley. And that ended up turning this thing into, you know, you wrote it right in the title, you know, the devil. Uh, it, it, you, when you start hooking kids on this stuff, uh, and, you know, in pursuit of growth at all costs, um, and and you know delivering so much nicotine, it becomes impossible to put down. You know it's a big issue. So it's I, I don't know what you think about it, but I I view it as a tragedy for sure. Yeah, I mean I think so too. And I I don't want to um, speak for the founders at all, but I believe that you, you know can. we won't penalize you on this one. Yeah, no, I mean I do <laughs> yeah. I do think I do think that they really intended initially to solve that problem. And I think that they just got put into the meat grinder. I think that Silicon Valley meat grinder, you know, I think that they like, you know, just, and I think the other thing that we haven't really talked about is at the time there was actually a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. So not only did they take VC money, but they had humongous competition from the cigarette companies. Like Reynolds had created this product called Views. Altria, of course, had created this product called Mark 10. Like they're about to get squashed by the 500 pound gorilla, you know? So like they had to be scrappy and to like figure out how to compete and to out innovate. Now, those companies were not innovative, which is, you know, why Altria ended Mm -hmm. up like basically crawling to them and saying, here, take my $12.8 billion. But like, you know, they really did have to like, if there was this moment in time where they were like, it's basically live or die. Like we either compete or we're mm-hmm. like out of this market immediately. So there's huge competition aside from the VC money that I think really kind of pressured them to, you know, take on this all yeah. know, growth at all costs model. But at, at the end of the day, we're all our decisions. And I've given the VCs a hard time here so far, and they deservedly so. Uh, the people that des- that decided to invest, it's not just a problem here with Jewel. It's a problem all over the tech industry. And mm-hmm. of course, sometimes it leads to amazing life-changing things. And without it, we probably wouldn't have some great companies. But yeah. um, we we know the downside of it, which is that sometimes companies go nuts, and they do. You know, it's part of the ethos to to you know bend the law, sometimes break the law. Look at Uber. You know, Jewel is another example. Um, they're all over the place. Look at what's happening with Facebook in order to grow. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, the VCs definitely have the blame, but also like, I don't know if I can. Um, let these founders off the hook like they you are the choices that you make and at the end of the day and you know even though they were in this meat grinder they definitely made the choices and um you know they they knew what they were doing at least yeah. from my perspective no i think so and i think they just kind of got like topsy-turvy it's like mm-hmm. you know they had this idea to create this product and then just um it took off so fast. I think it just took off so fast. And there was just like a, a cannon filled with money that was like being blasted at them. And um, yeah, I think, I, you know, I think another kind of lesson is yeah. that in Silicon Valley, you really need to surround yourself with ethical people, you know, with people who are making ethical decisions, you need to have your moral compass, like really, you know, straight. And 
I think that they, their moral compass was off. Yeah. You had an employee who was like asking himself before he took a job there, like whether he was the banality of evil, uh, by going to work for a company like this. And, um, and you know, then he goes and works for them and then ends up regretting not staying on when they ended up selling a good chunk of their company to Altria. Uh, which is what used to be Philip Morris. And it's like, wait, you were worried about being the banality of evil. Now you're kicking yourself for not taking the money from the tobacco company. It is. So of course, like, you know, it's these, these put this push and pull, it's the system. And then it's the individual and, you know, people do make these choices. It's, I, I, you know, I guess like who's responsible for it. I don't know, but, um, people do make choices at the end of the day and, um, they got to live with them and they got to own up to it. My perspective. Right. But like a lot of it was when, as Jewel was recruiting employees, it was all, it was a story, right? And again, back to Silicon Valley and every company has its story about, you know, how it's going to change the world and how it's going to solve this problem that nobody else can solve. And Jewel's story was that it was solving the smoking problem. And I think that a lot of employees were kind of seduced by that. They liked the idea of going to work for a company that hadn't gone public yet, that had a lot of upside, potential upside. And yeah, um, so, so yeah, I, I think everybody kind of convinced themselves that they actually weren't working for the tobacco industry, right? Because at the time they really weren't, but they were in the tobacco space. But yeah, I think that, I think as I say in my book, there was this moment when, when Altria invest $12.8 billion where the glass shattered, where everybody was like, oh shit, like we kind of told ourselves for a while that we were the underdog that we were, you know, out now we to, work for big tobacco. Yeah. Now we work for big tobacco. So, and I think that, um, the founders kind of struggled with that too. It was like, Oh wow. Okay. We were supposed to take on big tobacco. Now suddenly we are big tobacco and it's gone in an you know, entirely different direction. It's basically being subsumed by big tobacco. Yeah. And now we talk a lot about the regulations also. Um, we might've touched about this earlier, but like, shouldn't like aren't the people that pick up these things making a choice for themselves to start smoking them so maybe the government shouldn't intervene what do you think about that argument well i 100 percent agree with that argument when it comes to adults like no questions asked like you want to use nicotine for the rest of your life go for it you know enjoy it great have fun with that um you know and reap the consequences if there are them but like for kids i think it's just a different equation it's like for kids um, you know, and then, you know, people will say, well, it's up to the retailers to police that they shouldn't be selling to underage kids and stuff like that. But, you know, for a while there, there were not very many barriers for the kids to getting the products and stuff like that. So I don't really think that argument applies for young people. Like they, yeah. they're teens, like their brains aren't fully developed. Like, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, they're probably going to end up doing some, maybe some of them will end up doing something bad, smoking cigarettes or, you know, smoking pot or drinking alcohol or whatever. But, um, it's when you have the, that kind of the risk factor that's there with the highly addictive product combined with the marketing that appears to be targeting the kids. I think that's the problem. And I think that's really the problem for Juul. Had they yeah. not gotten the kids addicted, I don't think people really would have it cared have as been. much. It yeah. wouldn't have been a big deal. I right. think they would have had that more heroic veneer, honestly. Mm -hmm. It was they stepped on the third rail of American culture. I mean, like we went through the tobacco wars where like, you know, whatever, almost 30% of teens were smoking and it was. Right. And tobacco, you know, they were explicitly marketing to kids. Oh, 100%. They had joke oh, backpacks. Yeah. 
No, that was, there's no, I mean, nobody mm-hmm. even, it's not even up for argument. I right. mean, there were internal memos talking about how to attract the, you know, the next generation. They called them the, um, replacement, you know, replace- replacement customers. It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, who are they replacing? Oh yeah. The people, the four or 500,000 people that products killed. That die. That die. They literally called them the replacement yeah. customers. Yeah. And yeah, that's the that, problem. <laughs> yeah. That's the problem with hooking up with the tobacco mm-hmm. industry is like you're mm-hmm. hooking up with like the most like, you know, this industry that has been discredited, that has been just un- con- continually untrustworthy. And it's hard t- for people to separate that out. I think Jewel has a yeah. real uphill battle, honestly. Yeah. And I want to get to some more regulation stuff in a minute. But yeah. one question before we go to our second break, which is um, how, how important was social media? Um, in spreading this thing to kids and do, do the social media companies bear some responsibility? Oh, I mean, I am yes. reticent to call for social media companies to censor stuff uh, because we know where that goes. Like uh, this whole, like they, for a long time, you know, you weren't allowed to mention the possibility that coronavirus could have come from a lab on Facebook. Um, and then now you can, because they're now open to it. So they're obviously not very good at um, you know, monitoring what we can and can't say. But on the other hand, when it comes to kids' health, uh, maybe that is something they should step in. So I'm kind of curious, like, what you think their responsibility is there. Well, that was really interesting, actually. Like, I think the social media companies have kind of dodged a bullet on this one mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, they bear a lot of responsibility. Like, to be fair to Jewel, after their initial campaign, the vaporized campaign that was like, oh my God, clearly targeting at least youngish people. Um, they kind of tried to pull back and then they started dialing back on social media. But like there were, by that time, there the product was already out there. And there were all of these creators on social media that would like, you know, I write about this guy who created yeah. a Jewel Nation account and like, like thousands on Instagram. Yes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you had these people who had figured out how to monetize it on social media and Jewel would actually like beg Instagram, please Mm -hmm. take down this account. Like, and the social media companies wouldn't do anything about it. They're like, they're not violating any of our rules. Like there's nothing we can do about it. And like also eBay, I feel like eBay has gotten off the hook Mm -hmm. too. Like eBay was allowing them to like, you know, anybody to essentially buy Jewel, even after they tried to age gate the product more strictly, like you could still go to eBay and buy some Jewel pods and stuff like that. So like, I absolutely think, you know, whether or not they should have censored Jewel, that's a whole other conversation. But like, I absolutely think that the social media companies bear a lot of culpability and really kind of dodge a bullet on this whole like youth addiction Mm -hmm. issue, because a lot of it was on social media, 100%. And there's the right to say something. And then there's a totally separate question about whether algorithms should spread it. And the people that you write about in the book, they got engagement. The algorithm spread it. It wasn't paid for. It wasn't organic. It was, well, it was organic, you know, that it wasn't paid for, but it wasn't, uh, you know, people going directly to their page. It was the algorithm saying, hey, this is an engaging thing and we should show it to more people. And actually, I even looked today. And hashtag Jewel Boys is still populated with some <laughs> young, pe- young looking people yeah. jeweling it up. Wow. So if you work at Facebook yeah. and are thinking about this, uh, I'd love to hear from you about it uh, because it uh, does seem like an issue you should reckon with. Um, all right, let's take a break. I want to talk a little bit about um, the regulatory aspect here um, more broadly from like a technology standpoint. So we'll break and come right back uh, for one last segment. Hi, I'm Tomer Coyne. LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. 
Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here for our final segment with Lauren Etter, author of The Devil's Playbook and also a reporter at Bloomberg, Bloomberg News. Book is great. You should buy it, especially if you're already here in minute, uh, mid in the 40s in the conversation. You'll like the book, I promise you. Um, okay, so like the regulation aspect, it's kind of interesting to me because one thing that I've seen, uh, you know, when it comes to social media companies in particular, but tech companies in general, is that the tech moves so fast that a lot of times the damage is done before Congress or the regulatory bodies can, you know, even get their heads around what's happening. Uh, it, it seems like part of that happened here, but they also moved pretty fast. So do you think, I'm curious what you think about this inside the tech industry and how it's played out with, with Juul in particular. Yeah. No, it's interesting that you characterize it as playing out really fast because actually I think it like they dragged their feet for years. Like mm-hmm. really. Well, I'm, I'm coming at it from the perspective of like what's going on with the big tech companies. And oh, what, we, yeah. what we see with them is Congress drags them in front of hearings, makes YouTube yes. moments and yeah. then doesn't do jack shit. So actually they made, they acted here. And to me, that was, uh, but I guess like when you're addicting millions of kids to e-cigarettes, it's fairly slow. It's a couple of years. But sorry, yeah. go ahead. I didn't mean to no, interrupt No, I mean, I, yeah, no. Yeah. I, I think we're on the same page. The, the point, the, the important point, though, is that Juul was able to exploit a regulatory gap. So essentially, Congress did not act fast enough to bring e-cigarettes under their regulatory structure for tobacco products. So in 2009 the FDA was allowed finally to regulate tobacco products. But in that law, they didn't stipulate that e-cigarettes were a tobacco product. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until 2016 that that Congress finally deemed e-cigarettes to be considered a tobacco product. So from 2009 to 2016, e-cigarettes were kind of still already out there and they were basically no regulations whatsoever. So Juul launches in 2015, takes advantage of this existing regulatory gap and knows that the gap is going to be closed. That's really interesting to me is that Juul knew that the regulations were coming. And that was also part of, we've talked about, you know, the pressure from the VCs and the, you know, existing competition from the tobacco industry. But there is also this this impending regulatory structure that was getting ready to basically close the curtain as, as people call it, the curtain fell. Mm -hmm. And so basically Juul was incentivized to act really fast to get their product out there as fast as possible before the regulations kicked in. So yeah. So once- And that's when they start shipping out all these wacky flavors because they're like, we're not going to have a chance to do this afterwards. Yes. It's like, (laughs) it's like bird, you know, like being like, oh shit, the city's going to, 
the, the city's going to like regulate scooters, but let's just like mm-hmm. dump scooters on every street corner as fast as possible. So we can, or like Uber, like Uber doing the same thing. Like it was a sa- similar kind of race between regulators and the mm-hmm. company. So yeah. So finally the regulations do come down. Um, and they're still sort of in flux, but yeah, they took flavors off the market. Um, they implemented, um, age requirements, that type of thing. Um, so now there's basically, um, they do have some sort of regulatory structure, but there's going to be more. The FDA is essentially in the process right now, as we speak, evaluating whether or not Juul will meet this public health standard and whether or not they're going to be able to remain in the market. So the FDA mm-hmm. has another few months to decide whether or not Juul will, will be able to remain on the market. Um, yeah. So, yeah. By the way, there are, there are like, um, these always these negative consequences that we see with regulation and, you know, second order effects. Like when they said we're going to, um, you know, put these rules in a place, then you see these companies scrambling to get everything on the market. Uh, and even when I was reading, I found it was really interesting that the master settlement agreement with big tobacco companies after they had agreed to reform their businesses uh, in order to you know reduce the harm on the public, they had agreed to essentially make all their documents public. And yeah, that's great from a public accountability standpoint, but also it ended up, I, I don't know where Jewel would be without those documents because the company's founders ended up combing through them and all the competitors ended up coming through and they essentially had, uh, maybe that's what it is, the playbook, you know, <laughs> right? Oh, totally. Right there, you know, because of the regulation that we've done. So I just make this point to say that oftentimes people say that regulation is simple and, you know, X outcome will will inevitably be good if X regulator does this, but it's complicated stuff that can have all these second order effects that aren't uh, immediately apparent and don't get summed up in catchy headlines. Yes. And I think in this instance, uh, the most important effect is that if, you know, these products aren't allowed on the market anymore, smokers, legitimate adult smokers Mm -hmm. who are essentially, you know, have confined themselves to a death sentence, they don't have the opportunity to access a product that's potentially safer than, you know, a cigarette like Juul. So, you know, there are super like large consequences. It's a balance. And I think that the regulators, the FDA in particular, has a very tough balance to strike, and they're under a lot of pressure from all sides. Um, I can't imagine the FDA taking this product off the market. I mm-hmm. think that you know they'd be sued. I think that there would be huge blowback, political blowback. Um, so, so yeah, this is. I mean, this is an industry that is truly at an inflection point right now. And, um, it'll be very interesting to see, um, which way it goes. Weird question, but, you know, we talked a lot, we've talked a lot critically about the company, but, um, do you think that, well, I mean, obviously the damage has been done in some way, but if they do end up getting all these adults that like, as you mentioned, are hooked on cigarettes and have basically, you know, created a death sentence for them. And it does turn out that this stuff is safer than it, it seems like it's safer at least. Can Juul one day be a good thing for society? Yeah. I mean, I think if Juul can thread the needle, uh, which is essentially excluding the next um, generation off from nicotine addiction while treating adult smokers, that they can. Mm-hmm. But um, I had this very interesting conversation with Mike Moore, who is, you know, the former um, attorney general who, you know, really brought 
this um, one of the first tobacco lawsuits and was super consequential. Um, he essentially said these companies exist solely because they've gotten people addicted to nicotine. And mm-hmm. if you can't convince people to pay money to inhale something into their lungs, then you don't have a business anymore. And mm-hmm. like, if you think about it, if this industry doesn't have a next generation of users, there's like, there's not a very like long tail on the industry, right? It's going to peter out yeah. eventually. So there's this huge, fascinating kind of business incentive for them to continue hooking users. But at the same time, they say, no, it's just for adult smokers. So mm-hmm. I think if Juul can truly be a solution for adult smokers and adult smokers only, and not lead to initiation of either youth or non-nicotine users, then it's probably a pretty good product. But um, there's a big but of, there. Yeah. There's a big but because yeah. what company wants to be in business for a single generation? No company mm-hmm. talks about it like that. Right. You talk about multi-generations. How do you build a business, not just for one generation, but multiple generations? And mm. if they're true to their word, that they want to, you know, be a product for current smokers, then they have a, there's a finite kind of element to their business, but everybody knows that they're going to get new users, whether or right. not those are, ki- you know, teen smokers, perhaps, whether or not that, whether or not those are, you know, just kids who want to try nicotine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think we're always going to have nicotine users. Um, so but yeah, I, I think it uh, opens up a lot of interesting questions. But if Juul can like be true to its, you know, its stated mission of getting adult smokers off of cigarettes, um, smoking cigarettes, then it could be a okay business. Yeah. And I asked that question because I was tweeting out the end of your book, uh, which I thought right. was great, talking about they didn't need to get, basically it was saying what we talked about. They yeah. didn't need to try to get this big and they could have been, uh, they could have been this force for good that they hoped for in the beginning and, you know. Someone tweeted back, you know, what about the utilitarian argument? And it's like, all right, well, it's still in play. It's just kind of far-fetched. And what like. is the utilitarian argument? It's basically like it, it did. Will it um, take people who smoke cigarettes and end up turning them on to e-cigarettes? Essentially, we've been talking about it. So yeah, TBD, yeah. TBD, but not TBD. looking good. Um, what, did they, <laughs> what have they felt about the book? Have they uh, contacted you or... Um, have you gotten a chance to speak with the founders? Because I didn't so, see any direct quotes from them in, in the book. So, Right, right. Yeah. So what I'll say is that um, I've heard a lot of um, feedback from Richmond, which is very interesting. There's a Richmond is where Altria is based. That's mm. the uh, hometown of the tobacco industry. And um, I know that there's a lot of interest there. And, um, you know, I've gotten some interesting feedback and stuff like that. But so far... Um, yeah, it's so far pretty interesting, but um, I'll leave it at that. Okay, um, they're not threatening to sue you or anything like that. No, yeah, no, it's, and it's I don't. A, I really don't yeah. see why. You know, yeah. it's like I, I, you know, there are lots of haters out there, people mm-hmm. who you know think that I'm like um, some sort of anti vaping person, but like you know, I feel like it's like a pretty nuanced look at this you know complicated, right. super controversial industry, and if like they read my book, then they'll realize that. But um, you know, I don't, I don't think that. Um, I don't see a lawsuit. I just don't. Yeah. Uh, last thing I'll, I want to end with is there's a scene at the beginning of the book where the two jewel founders go into Altria, which again is the rebranded Philip Morris. Come on guys, stick with the name. 
you know, own what you've done. But <laughs> right. okay, Altria. They go into Altria and uh, they uh, try to sell the product to them or try to get investment, and they get laughed out of the, out of the room. And like they were all gung ho, we're going to destroy big tobacco. Then a number of years later, they end up selling thirty five percent, I believe, yeah. of the company Correct. to Altria for somewhere around thirteen billion dollars. Yeah, a uh, uh, price tag so big that Altria had to lay off. A number of people in its traditional businesses, uh, mm-hmm. and it tanked the stock. And then they had to write, write either they've written down their investment, or they don't believe that it's worth anywhere close to what they paid for. So, you know, in some sense, they actually did stick it to big tobacco, but not exactly in the path that they hoped for. I, I thought the exact same thing. It was <laughs> like, it was like they they're like saying they're going to take big tobacco down. And I think somebody there's even a, a quote in my book where they're like we just punked this hundred year old company, you know, cigarette company. And I mean, it was a deal of the century for, for jewel and the mm-hmm. jewel board. I mean, they didn't even have to sell stock. They just got a dividend. They got a $12.8 billion dividend mm-hmm. and got to continue holding all of their shares and basically just took all of that money off the table. So, you know, they did distribute it, some of it to the employees, but the, the vast majority of it went into the pockets of the uh, original founders and uh, the biggest shareholders. So yeah, in a way they did stick it to big tobacco. I agree with you. I like that. And they were, they they were so worried that the employees wouldn't come along for the ride that they had to put aside a billion dollars or so and distribute it among the employees who walked away with what minimum of $600,000, but often million or more. Exactly. It's amazing what money will do. It's amazing. Oh, totally. It was like it definitely they had, cleared yeah. their conscience a little bit for sure. It made it a little bit, made the sugar, uh, the medicine go down, sugar like the medicine yeah. go down. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I read that scene of the um, employees at Phil at Altria um, hearing the news that they were going to get laid off. And lots of them were going to get laid off as part of this $600 million cost cutting effort in order to bring Jewel in. And I did feel bad a little bit, but not, not too much. I'm going to be honest. I felt like that was one of the most kind of jarring scenes was mm-hmm. like the fact that that happened on the same day, like yep. one company in Silicon Valley is getting like money rained down on them. And the same day, you know, across on the other side of the country in Richmond, they're being delivered the news that they're going to be layoffs. And um, it was a much different tone. It was like one was celebrating, the other was very somber, almost like a funeral procession. So yeah, but that's the you know collision of these two industries. It's just there are winners and there are losers in multiple different mm-hmm. realms, I guess, in this story. Yeah, it's what, what disruption looks like, except this is a yeah. very unique story of disruption. The book yeah. is Devil's Playbook by Lauren Etter. Lauren, thank you for joining so much. It was, uh, it was a pleasure reading the book, and it was great getting a chance to speak with you about it. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun to talk to you, Alex. Likewise. Uh, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Nick Guatney, for turning this around on short notice as usual. Uh, and uh, with the editing, of course, mastering and Red Circle for selling the ads and hosting the show. We always appreciate that. Uh, we will be back next Wednesday with another show with a tech insider, outside agitator or journalist. We'll keep you waiting in suspense for which one it will be. Thanks again for Lauren. Pick up the book, Devil's Playbook. It's out and available at all major booksellers today. All right, we'll see you next time.